Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. Hillary Frank is the host, creator, and executive producer of award-winning podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. She's a former contributor to This American Life, the author and illustrated of three young adult novels, The View from the Top, I Can't Tell You, and Better Than Running at Night. Her latest book is Weird Parenting Wins, Bathtub Dining, Family Screams, and Other Hacks from the Parenting Trenches. Her recent op-ed in the New York Times called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers challenged the idea that motherhood issues were a niche topic. Her article, Having Kids Doesn't Mean You Have to Turn Boring, on CNN.com gives moms tips for breaking apart from the stereotypes. Hi, Hillary. Hi, Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Yeah, no problem. So, Weird Parenting Wins, amazing book. I got so many, like, fantastic suggestions that I'm going to be implementing immediately with my four kids. (laughs) Can you tell listeners what Weird Parenting Wins is about? Yes. So, when I had my baby, I read a lot of books, and I felt like the advice I was getting from experts was making me feel like a failure because... A lot of this advice is written from a my way or the highway perspective. And if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, then, you know, I would feel like there was something wrong with me or something wrong with my kid. And the thing that I discovered is that the stuff that was really working for me was stuff that I had invented myself, like out of trial and error, out of moments of desperation, (laughs) or things that friends had shared with me. And so I did a call out on the Longest Shortest Time website to see if other parents had similar experiences. And we just got the most amazing responses. And so many of them were hilarious. It was things like, you know, a dad who pig snorts in his baby's ear to get her to stop crying or parents who are charging their electric toothbrushes to conduct the baby to sleep like like a white noise machine. (laughs) And so I just thought like, oh, you know, like we should really trust the intuition of parents. And I wanted to sort of create this book that was like a brain trust of the weird stuff that parents actually do to get their kids to do what they need them to do. It's so great. And I love how at the beginning of each chapter, you sort of organize it by topic, but then you have your own like hilarious little anecdotes. And then you just go into all the quotes from all these different parents and it's like Mm -hmm. immediately you just trust them because it's like why you know it's perfect it's so actionable what are some of your favorite parenting wins some of the weird things that maybe you do with your kids you're with Sasha yeah so my favorite one is what's on my butt which is a game that this mom Maggie created where she lies face down on the couch and tells her kid to fetch some object and put it on her butt and she has to guess what it is. (laughs) And the longer it takes to guess, the longer she gets to rest and the girl gets to feel like she's playing. So I've done that a lot with my daughter. That's genius. And then my daughter also has like this habit of liking to show me what's in her mouth when she's eating at the table. And I don't like to be a nag. Like it, it just gets annoying, you know, to have to always be like, stop eating with your mouth open. (laughs) And so instead, there's this suggestion that a parent had to do an elbow point. And so when the kid's chewing with their mouth open, you just sort of point your elbow at them and go elbow point. And it becomes more of like a fun 
saying. I think yeah. some of my favorites, I loved dinner in odd places where if you can't yes. get your kids to eat, you just run around and eat wherever. Another yes. favorite, my kids used to be so scared of those automatic flushers in public restrooms. And one of the moms mm-hmm. in the book suggested taping a panty liner over the sensor. And so she carries them yeah. in her bag. That's, that was awesome. I think I'm going to do that. Bringing balloons that weren't inflated into the airport and then blowing them up so you have something to play with. Those were great. Yeah. I mean, there were like so many. I could have just like, I kept circling and like trying to remember to, to do all these things. Maxi pads have multiple uses too. Like they can be, <laughs> they can be like stickers. Like when you need to answer emails, your kid can like unwrap them out of the packages and like stick them on the walls and on the floor. Oh, perfect. And post-its too. <laughs> One of the suggestions was putting exactly. post-its all over the house. Yeah. Maybe like yeah. a treasure hunt with post-its. So definitely I'm going to have to use that one. <laughs> so your podcast, The Longest Shortest Time, which is like one of the most successful, amazing podcasts ever. And you started it, you know, you were like totally at the forefront of this whole podcast, you know, not revolution, but whatever a good word is, Mm -hmm. movement. How did you start doing the podcast? And then, of course, the podcast led into the book. So talk to me a little more about starting Mm -hmm. the podcast. So when I started the podcast, I had been working in radio for 10 years. And when I had my baby, I like, you know, took some time out and I had had a rough childbirth and recovery. And so wasn't able to work for a while. And I knew that technology was changing and I wanted to like keep my foot in the door and show people that I still had chops. And so making a podcast was an easy way to do that. And at that time, the idea that you could make a podcast your job was kind of laughable. That wasn't the point of it for me. I was really just trying to make it my calling card. And also, because I had had this rough childbirth and just moved to a new town, I didn't really know anybody and I wanted to connect with other moms who were willing to talk honestly about parenthood and to talk about the kinds of struggles that you go through as a parent. And I was having trouble meeting people who were like willing to talk honestly with me, but I knew because of my experience as a radio reporter that if you stick a microphone under somebody's face, they're more likely to open up to you and you also have license to ask them deeper questions. And so I started this podcast as a way to connect with other parents. And it was really like almost a selfish endeavor. It was like supposed to heal me. And it did. (laughs) But the thing that like the side effect was that it also was really cathartic to other people. And it started almost like this whole community, like it, it developed pretty quickly. And so what do you think are some of the things, obviously you're great at, you know, the radio aspect with all of your background, but some of the things that made the show just take off so much, do you think it's the relatable aspect of the things, you know, just the confession like you were just talking about, or do you think there were any specific things you did to like market the podcast or, you know, tactical things as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of things. I think in the storytelling, I make the stories accessible to not just parents. I make them like just compelling stories that I I hope anyone would want to listen to. For example, you know, we have a whole series on a transgender man who wound up getting pregnant and having a baby. And there's a lot more to his story, but that's been one of our most popular series. And I know that there are people who listen to that who don't have kids and don't have any interest in having kids. So there's that piece of it. I also think that a lot of parenting media, at least when I was starting my podcast, almost all of it was designed to pit parents against each other, like to choose sides of various parenting issues. And a lot of it was really like 
issue-based. And even when we discuss issues like, you know, discrimination against working moms on the longest, shortest time, it's all story-based. And so that draws you in and makes it easier to, like, relate to other people who are not necessarily like you on the surface. And then the other thing I did is I proved that the show could make money by inviting sponsors. I cold called a bunch of sponsors when I was first starting the show in order to make a Kickstarter. And I just reached out to brands that I thought were supportive of me when I was a a new mother. It was like stuff like diapers.com and Ergo Baby and Medela and just cold called them and asked if they would support me in this Kickstarter. And they had never supported a podcast before. And almost all of them said yes, because they believed in the mission of the show. So there was a lot going on all at once. That's awesome. Is there anything you wish you had known when you first started out now that you're such a veteran? (laughs) I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I guess I wish I would have known that it was possible that it would last so long. I guess I might might have done some more like pre-planning because I was just winging it as I was going. But I think it's cool to hear how it evolved over time. That's awesome. So can we talk for two seconds about your recent New York Times article, The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers, which was amazing. So in the article, you know, you, you show how no matter what mothers do, it's somehow not almost not good enough, almost like it's not newsy or it's not important or somehow it's, it's just not as really as not as important, but <laughs> exactly. Yes. I think we're belittled. I yes. think what, like that's a better word. Thank once, you. <laughs> once you become a mother, I think that like a lot of stuff, according to society, like gets erased about you. Yeah. So, yeah, did you have a question about well, it? Yeah, no, I just, what made you write that piece? Was there a special, was there a certain trigger that led you to, to write that one? A lot of triggers. I mean, so I think I didn't put together that it was misogyny against mothers until a lot of stuff piled up. And as things would happen, I would be like, oh, that's weird. Mm-hmm. I've never, I've never been talked to that way. But I just, I don't know, it just let it go. And then... After a while, I looked at all of this stuff as a whole. And so the first thing that happened was when I first made my podcast, it wasn't possible to make a living just having a podcast. And so I had to get my pieces on the radio if I wanted to get paid for them. And so I had, you know, this decade long experience working with public radio and I never really had trouble getting stories on the air. And so I pitched a couple of my stories to this one outlet that I worked with a lot. And my editor took the stories to like the higher ups and we were trying to see if we could get like an ongoing series on the radio, like as a segment, as a part of a larger show. And the response I got back was from my editor was that the higher ups said that I sounded like a little girl. (laughs) And I was just like, well, that's so weird. Okay. I've never heard that before. And I have kind of a deep voice. That's strange. And then over time, like I discovered that the subject matter that I wanted to get on places wasn't being accepted. And I was being told that like the subject matter was too small. There was a story that I wanted to get on NPR about why moms were giving up on their sex lives and why more mothers didn't know about pelvic floor physical therapy after childbirth injuries. And then, you know, there's the fact that 
insurance often doesn't cover pelvic floor physical therapy. And so I wondered, like, does that make getting your sex life back a class issue? And it just seemed like really fertile ground for an interesting story of some kind. And the thing that I heard back was, you can't talk about sex on the radio. Hmm. And later on, I thought about it some more, and it seemed like a real double standard because on NPR, there have been several stories about Viagra. And when you're talking about Viagra, you're talking about arousal. And when you're talking about childbirth injuries, you're talking about chronic pain. And it just felt to me like we were prioritizing one thing over the other. And so what can we do about it? (laughs) I mean, I think the article was trying to do something about it, and I think it is stirring things up. I mean, I've been hearing from people who work in the business and saying like, wow, this is making me rethink the ways that I've talked to other people in the past. I don't know how soon we'll see a move in the dial, but I also think that parenting media has changed a lot in the last, you know, eight to 10 years. There are more books now about like the unvarnished truth about motherhood. Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming more of like, it's coming out of the shadows. And so maybe the more we understand about it and the the less we keep it secret, the more editors will want to air this stuff. Yeah. I think you're raising awareness to the whole issue is so key. So Thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you also write young, you've written young adult fiction, several books. Yes. Tell me about writing those. When did you start writing that? How do you fit that in with your life? How does writing combine with, uh, you know, all your broadcasts? When do you do everything? Like, how do you get it all done? I mean, things happen one at a time. I'm not doing it all at once. (laughs) (laughs) So I was a freelancer for, you know, those first 10 years of my career and So I I was reporting stories for public radio while, you know, writing books, but I take on one project at a time. Sometimes they overlap, but like I was just sort of cobbling everything together at that time. And so I did three young adult novels, which I wrote and illustrated before my daughter was born. And the last one came out the year that she was born. And then I started The Longest, Shortest Time, and I haven't written a novel since then. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to write more books? Did you enjoy the process? I want to write. Yeah. Yeah, I want to write more, and I'm trying to figure out. I do. I feel like I'm feeling a fiction itch recently, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. And did you enjoy the whole process of Weird Parenting Wins? I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I love communicating with our listeners and I love how much they surprise me and make me laugh (laughs) and make me cry. (laughs) So, you know, we got over 800 submissions for this book and wound up using almost 350 of them. Wow. Yeah. So it it was just like a pleasure to sort through these and figure out which ones were my favorites. And do you have any advice for aspiring authors and also podcasters? Yeah. Don't listen to anybody's rules. Okay. (laughs) Because I got where I am by breaking all of the rules, especially if you're a woman and especially if you're a mom, don't let anyone tell you your subject matter is too small or you're not going to be able to bring in enough money. If you believe that you can do it, go for it and prove them wrong. Love it. I feel like I should be like beating my chest now, you know, like, (laughs) that's awesome. And same thing for authors. What about people trying to write young adult fiction? I know there are a lot of people like that. So when I was 
starting out, I sent in a bunch of unsolicited submissions, including to This American Life and then to like a, a fiction editor. And I got many rejections before I got anything published. And I would get these like personalized notes telling me why my stuff was getting rejected. And you should take if you ever get those, take those as an extreme compliment and listen to the notes and incorporate them. And then in general, like even if you're not getting that stuff, be open-minded when people give you notes because your first draft is never going to be your best draft. Excellent. So aside from your fiction itch, what else do you have coming next? That's right now. I'm just, I'm going on tour for weird parenting wins. I'm going to go to a few different cities and then I'm going to figure out how to scratch that fiction itch. (laughs) And you're not coming to, you're not coming to New York City, right? I couldn't find you on the... I'm coming to Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll have to put it on the calendar. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm such a huge fan and I'm so grateful for the value in my day-to-day life from your book. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 